It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts a platter with the fear fight down. Next fire in the fire, Mr. Simpson's other gangs in the government for hiring the combat site. Break it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom! That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. A moment of morality in a mendacious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. That's right, and we together are the gang of two, the Harmonious Honeys. You're, are you my Harmonious Honey? Oh, yes, darling. You absolutely are. We are all the, <laughs> we are Harmonious a, like a <laughs> drum and a flute. <laughs> yeah, like that. Well, I mean, a fife and drum corps, that work, they go, they I'm go the, together. I'm the beautiful flute playing the lovely sound, and yeah. you're beating the drum of... Go, go, go. Go, See? go, Does go. That make yes, sense? that's right, because I am the flute and the focused. Drum. Boy, am I focused. <laughs> well, anyhow, we are the courageous couple, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With an insidious iguana? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the times are tough and the going is rough... What you gonna do when someone gets hurt or injured? Be a bystanding bystander just standing by? I'll bet. Well, you know what? I don't think so. You are gonna show the world that you've got more sense than a pocket full of pickles by listening about <laughs> what? What? Pocket full of pickles? Yeah. By learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along pickles. with all that knowledge. And, and pickles. What better place to get that? And 
a pocket full of pickles. Pickles! And the lovely Nurse Amy's <laughs> entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits. Does not include pickles. At store.doomandbloom.net. Yes, those are by prescription only. <laughs> pickles? <laughs> yeah. No, you can get dill and garlic yeah. and sweet and, and hamburgers. Right, 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 right. All kinds of pickles out there. And what are they called? Bread and butter pickles? Fried pickles. Yeah, marinated like that. pickles. <laughs> That's about all the pickles I can come up with. Well, let's come up with some medical kits here. Okay. Yes, our medical kits will indeed help you handle medical issues that you'll face in any disaster designed by, indeed, an honest-to-gosh old country doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner and certified nurse midwife. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. Please do. And you will be absolutely in agreement that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Obviously, (laughs) that's pretty clear. So what do you know, Flo? Be progressive and teach us What's going on? Reach out to the geezer and his goddess. It's easy, and here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you. <clears throat> Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show, at Facebook. We have a group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We also have a Facebook page, which is a central location to find all our stuff, Doom and Bloom. You can also find us at our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. All sorts of ways to connect with the old codger and mm-hmm. his queen. Oh, you know, I haven't mentioned the Jacksonville uh, show or class, actually. All right. Well, where are we going to be and when? Well, uh, interestingly enough, the NPS shows this is probably the eighth one, I think, seventh or eighth. Anyway... It's on December 1st and 2nd, which is a Friday and a Saturday, instead of the normal Saturday, Sunday. So we'll be there on December 1st and 2nd for the actual show in Jacksonville, Florida, the MPS show. And then we're going to have a special eight-hour class in Jacksonville at the Homewood Suites right near the uh, convention center or the expo center. And we're going to be teaching... For a whole day, we're going to be teaching things like suturing and stapling. We'll be teaching how to deal with hemorrhage. We'll be teaching about mass casualties. We'll teach you how to recognize sounds on your stethoscope. And you'll be able to tell when someone has pneumonia, when someone has bronchitis, things like that. We'll also be talking about burns and uh, penetrating wounds and blunt trauma and Gosh, how to put together a good epidemic sick room. We'll be talking about epidemics and things like that. So, And we'll also be talking about antibiotics and how to use them and when to use them, which is much more important. These things are not candy, and you need to know how to judiciously use the supplies that you have, especially in times of trouble when it's very possible they're just not making this stuff anymore. So I hope you'll check out our classes page. It's on the main page toolbar uh, at doomandbloom.net and you'll be able to check out our classes just look for the word classes and it'll tell you much more information you'll go home with uh, various medical supplies as well so you're not just going there just to work hands-on for a little while but you actually get to take home a lot of this stuff as well so i think that's 
a great thing. I hope that I think we have about five spots left. I hope that you will consider joining us if you're in the Jacksonville area. If not, just come to the show and come say hi. We'll have all our medical supplies there, and you can take a look and see if there are any holes that you might need to fill in your medical storage. Hey, you know, a week or two ago, we discussed the various schedules of drugs where the Food and Drug Administration decides where how to categorize their control substances. The various schedules of drugs go from one to five, and the ones that are the worst have no accepted medical use and a high risk of addiction. Those are called Schedule One drugs. Other ones are put sequentially down based on just how much accepted medical use they have and, of course, how much they'll get you hooked on them all the way down to level five. But Schedule One is essentially a ban on it. From my standpoint, even as a medical professional, there are some medicines that I can't get a hold of. Uh, heroin, for example, is one of these drugs. It's a Schedule One drug. Now, strangely, though, so is marijuana, and marijuana indeed is legal in some states, and although it's legal on a statewide level in some areas, it's still federally illegal, which is a a real can of worms that I'm sure is going to wind up in the Supreme Court one day. Now, last year, I wrote about the Food and Drug Administration's campaign to ban the Asian herb kratom, or kratom, some people call it that, which is a non opioid herb for those people that have chronic pain, who have anxiety, who have drug dependency issues. And the Food and Drug Administration wants to put it in Schedule 1, essentially to exile it where no citizen will ever be able to access it without, well, going to jail probably. And I was considering the herb as an option that might take the place of more addictive substances. Now, around the same time, however, the FDA set a date for late 2016 to rule Kratom a Schedule One drug. That was pretty terrible because I was looking at it as something that possibly could be grown, something that could be processed, even in a situation where you're completely off the grid, if you're lucky enough to be in a climate that will happen to grow it. And then what happened was, One of the most extraordinary things that ever happens, the FDA changed its mind. Now, it didn't do this willingly. It did it as a result of a public outcry to keep Kratom legal from tens of thousands of citizens who petitioned uh, the government. And among them were more than 50 members of Congress, congressmen and senators. And in response to the pressure, the proposed ban, which was to occur, I think, in October of last year, was canceled. But you know what? The FDA doesn't forget when it's embarrassed, and it's persistent, stubborn, and it once again wants to push to prevent the sale and use of Kratom in the United States. Let me tell you a little bit about Kratom, in case you haven't read my articles on it or, or listened to the previous shows in which we mentioned it. Kratom's scientific name is Mitrogyna. Speciosa, and it's been used in Southeast Asia for millennia for various medicinal purposes, including pain, anxiety, and depression. Uh, the compounds in kratom are metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine, and these substances act on opioid receptors in the brain, just like heroin and morphine do, to eliminate pain. Now, despite that, 
kratom is not an opioid. It's not a member of that family at all. It's a member of the coffee family. Therefore, using it doesn't cause what happens to people who overdose on morphine or heroin or those kind of drugs, respiratory depression. In other words, you stop breathing. That's how most opioid overdoses die. And so it's a non-opioid alternative to heroin. And to me, sounds like a pretty reasonable option to pursue, but the FDA has a commissioner named Scott Gottlieb, and he says that at a time when we've hit a critical point in the opioid epidemic, the increasing use of kratom as an alternative or adjunct to opioid use is very concerning. Now, I can understand not wanting it to be an adjunct, and an adjunct basically is medical speak for adding kratom to your drug intake. I don't want people to add any more drugs to the kinds of drugs they're taking, but not even as an alternative to heroin. I mean, I think almost anything would be a welcome substitute for heroin or any kind of prescription opioid abuse. Now, Kratom has received Kratom has received many, many testimonials as to its success in helping those people addicted to opioids kick the habit. Now, Mr. Gottlieb, however, claims there is no hard data for Kratom's effectiveness and that there is a deadly risk to using the herb. Matter of fact, some states and even some countries have outlawed its sale or its export. Now, the FDA uses several hundred reported cases of poisoning, quote-unquote, involving Kratom over the past few years as reason enough to prohibit it, including what they say are 36 deaths. But if you investigate these closely, you'll see that Kratom is very rarely the only drug that they find on autopsy or on post-mortem evaluation of the people that died from with Kratom in their system. Some people mix it with other drugs like OxyContin. Now, in the meantime, the number of deaths from heroin overdose in 2015 alone was more than 13,000, with at least 15,000, maybe up to 20,000 prescription opioid deaths in the same year. Now, you compare that to the 36, that, that those one-year totals to 36 deaths over a period of years as a result of Kratom, and I mean, I think you'll see that there's a pretty stark difference in death rates. And in that circumstance, you would think that the government would want to do further research on Kratom before dismissing it as heroin class dangerous. Now, some of this research is reported in places like Scientific America. It's not in weird journals or anything like that. It's reported in Scientific American. It's been reported by Columbia University, University of Mississippi, University of Florida, University of Massachusetts, all sorts of places. And all of these places see a potential for the possible development of future painkillers without as much addictive potential as the painkillers that we currently have. A matter of fact, Columbia University pharmacologist Andrew Kroigel says keeping Kratom legal may help develop better pain meds. He says that those compounds alone may already be superior to codeine and oxycodone, and at a minimum, if you can get rid of respiratory problems, then you can save thousands of lives if the research were able to legally continue. And that's the thing. If Kratom can be a pain reliever that does not cause you to stop breathing, then it might be a very preferable substitute for stronger drugs. And this guy is not alone. Other researchers also favor further evaluation before placing Kratom on the list with bad guy drugs. But the FDA, being stung by the pressure to reverse its decision last year, 
persists in its mission to try to prohibit the access to it. Well, I think what they're doing is they, they're trying to save face. They reversed their way last year, and now they're trying to say, hey, we didn't forget about this. You can't yeah. just pretend like uh, we don't exist. We're going to regulate this whether you like it or not. They're going to regulate the hell out of it. Well, by doing legislation, it's going to make it much harder to reverse it because really, after that, who's going to care? That's you know, true. Well, once people... something is done, right? It sort of goes into the you know vast wasteland of and you uh, that and you'll never hear about it again. No, never. It's never going to be important to uh, those who are trying to get elected ever again. Now, you may think of me as a guy pushing this drug. I'm not really no. particularly pushing this herb on you're people. Not. I know you're you not. You know, I'm I'm not saying that, and also I'm not saying that we know all there is to know about this substance. Certainly, you got to do more research, but how are you going to do more research when it's legally difficult to connect with it? And something that's illegal. So that's the point. We need to keep it legal for a period of time. And because there is so few data, so few, there's no studies that are actually looking at it. Somebody's counting. They're like, oh, well, that guy supposedly had some kratom in his blood, probably along with four or five other things. And this guy had kratom in his blood, and so they're they're accusing the kratom of being the killer when it probably wasn't the kratom that actually killed or killed those people. I would like to see some issue, and I'm sure there is an OD amount of a single person or any person who actually only had that ingredient in their blood system. No other prescription medicines, nothing else, no alcohol, no other drugs, just that, and then they passed away. And that they didn't have any medical conditions that caused them to pass away. So, you know, they they blaming this drug, this herb, for things it may not be responsible for. It could be. Well, there is. I'm not whitewashing this and saying, oh, this is just fine and use it for whatever. I'm just saying, let's give it a chance to show whether or not it could help people who are addicted to these terrible drugs out there. Absolutely. We don't know that Kratom is the cure to the opioid no, epidemic or anything like not. that. But the FDA shouldn't act hastily right. to prohibit a substance that could save some lives. Exactly. Some of those lives that we lose every year to opioid abuse. And the sad thing is that the government seems certain that it's not going to somehow drive Kratom users to more clearly dangerous drugs by uh, banning it. That's not the videos you and I have right. seen right. and the We're, testimonies that you and I have read. Right. There are a if bunch. If you search for it. Yeah. If you just go to YouTube and look up Kratom, you'll see all sorts of different testimonials. And one of them is from Navy veteran Andrew Turner, who shows you what he's like while he takes Kratom. And he shows you what he's like after being off Kratom for a while. Right. And he has a, a condition called Magus syndrome, which is a kind of dystonia, in other words, involuntary muscle contractions. Right. It, it that just he has. appears like a lot of different ticks and body movements. Right, exactly. Uncontrollable. And he suffers also from chronic pain. He also suffers from post traumatic stress disorder. Right. And a number of other other things. And so it is something that you have to realize there are people that indeed show ill effects from the withdrawal, lack, with well, not the having withdrawal it. from right. Kratom. That's right. right. Now, the, so anyhow, the truth of the matter is, the devil you know is well better 
or not better than the devil you don't know, it's hard to say. But when the devil that you do know is heroin, I doubt that the devil you don't know, which is Kratom, is actually worse. I agree. So the bottom line, exiling Kratom to the land of Schedule One drugs is not the answer. Now, last time we talked about respiratory infections, things like colds and flus, but there are other infections in the respiratory tract that we haven't discussed yet. So let's go over a few of these, as you'll see more of these in the coming months as people start coming down with them during the winter months. Now, one of them is, so we talked about colds, we talked about influenza. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other ones. One of them is sinusitis, and your sinuses are several paired uh, air-filled spaces in the skull. You, these are holes in your skull, essentially, or cavities in your skull that surround the nose. And sinus infections are also called sinusitis, and they occur when fluid that has germs in it fills these compartments, and that can be caused by either viruses or bacteria, or it could even be related to non-infectious reasons, such as allergies. Now, common signs of sinusitis include a very thick mucus congestion, sometimes green or yellow in color, uh, a facial pain, low-grade fever, bad breath, cough. Some people notice a loss of the sense of smell. Uh, you may have painful areas over a particular sinus. You have a, a number of different sinuses in your face, uh, the maxillary sinus uh, in the area of the cheek, the frontal sinus in the forehead area, uh, pressure behind the eyes, that's called the sphenoidal sinus, and uh, these are just a number of different anatomic areas where you might accumulate fluid that can cause pain. How lovely. I know. Lots, lots of places to accumulate fluid that causes terrible pain. It is bad. And, and people, people with sinusitis oftentimes feel worse when they're lying down or they're bending over, especially if they, your sinuses are really filled with fluid. Right. And I know you're going to talk about uh, where the pain might be, but I just want to mention that you could actually feel dental pain. And this happens when you have a lot of that pressure, basically over the cheeks and near the ears. Um, I had a little bit of that earlier today. I've carried this sinus pressure from being up in Gatlinburg. There's a lot of allergies going on yeah. up there. A lot of sneezing and <laughs> post-nasal drip. Yeah. Um, but that pressure still hasn't gone away. And I oh actually had some dental pain today, knowing that I don't have any dental issues, but it happens. So if you wake up and you feel weird pain like in your lower jaw and you think there's something wrong with your teeth, it could possibly be your sinuses. More, Probably more the upper jaw because you do have a sinus right above yeah. your upper teeth. And in the lower jaw, may you you probably could like have ear infections. Pain. Yeah, could, it's a referred pain yes. from the ear pressure. Like, right. And people sometimes have pain in the forehead area that's a frontal sinusitis and, and pain or pressure behind the eyes or the back of the or the back of the head or behind the ears that's uh, the sphenoidal it's really fun really fun being issues. a human i know it's terrible <laughs> the long list of things that get us <laughs> i know sinusitis by the way when it when you get it, it usually doesn't go away in three days i mean it can last weeks oh yeah in in a qk it's gonna last months in chronic cases and actually can recur several times a year so it's something that is a big issue. Now, the viral versions of sinusitis are usually shorter in duration than bacterial sinusitis, but your treatment for that would be decongestants. You would want uh, to treat bacterial sinusitis if you could figure out that you have that. 
with antibiotics like amoxicillin, 500 milligrams orally about three times a day for about 10 to 14 days. The fish equivalent for that is fish mox forte. Okay, let's talk about laryngitis. Laryngitis, I'm beginning to get laryngitis myself right now. It's an inflammation of the voice box or the larynx. And symptoms for this will, of course, of course include being very hoarse or even, indeed, losing the ability to speak. <laughs> if you lose the ability to speak, honey, We're in trouble. I'll take over. Uh, I'll you? Take, if you want me to talk about something, just let me know. All right. Go ahead. Talk about something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I got yeah, you, didn't hot. I? I got you. Yeah, You're that's so right. funny. Well, laryngitis is, may be caused by either viruses or by bacteria, and it's characterized by redness in the area. Unfortunately, you can't see down to your larynx without special instruments like a laryngoscope, and so it's hard to tell, but you can just tell simply by the level of hoarseness that people have. They actually lose the ability to speak in some cases, even worse than you would have with a sore throat or a pharyngitis. Uh, then there's also tracheitis. Tracheitis is uh, part of the tree, or trachea is your windpipe. It involves part of the upper and lower, sort of sort of the midline there, uh, the border of it, and it's often characterized as an upper respiratory infection, though. And in that case, you have a pretty dry cough that sounds sort of like barking. You have this really weird <gasps> kind of oh, that was noise very that you make. Good called strider and and also it is associated with fever so this is something that's pretty uncommon thank goodness but when you do have it it could be because of a staph infection uh, or it could be caused by a virus then there is a more common version that you see in kids and that's laryngotracheitis it's not laryngitis it's not tracheitis it's laryngotracheitis and that's also known as croup most of you would probably know it by that name. That's oh, a, the nasty, nasty right. croup. Poor oh, babies. I know. When well, they get this. That my, both my kid, all, all of my kids had it, and it was terrible to go through. It's a common pediatric infection, and it's usually viral, but it can be uh, mimicked by a bacterial tracheitis. But most of the time, you can assume that it's a, vi a viral infection. Now, it's fairly common in young children. In, and it presents as this, as this distinctive cough that sounds like a seal barking, like a... <laughs> if you hear that while the child is trying to breathe, then you're probably dealing with croup, especially if there's fever, difficulty breathing, hoarseness, nasal congestion. you got a kid that obviously has a respiratory infection and is making that sound. You probably have a kid that's got croup. You have and got to watch for their... Um... I'd say oxygen saturation, but basically you need to make sure that these kids don't turn blue. Their fingers, their toes, their lips, you you have to keep an eye on them. I hate to say you have to do a 24-hour watch, but honest to goodness, um, when they're that sick and it's that junky inside, they need it. You yeah. really need somebody with their eyes on, especially the smaller the kid, the the more vigilant you have to be. We're not talking about a video screen or a motion detector. We're talking about staring at your child while they're sleeping. Either having them in your lap while they're sleeping and you're just making sure every breath is regular. Um, it's just a very scary thing. That's right. And these symptoms, all that interesting you mentioned watching your child while you're sleeping. 
that while they're sleeping, mm-hmm. and that's because these symptoms oftentimes are worse at night. So it is a big nighttime issue, and I've lost, I lost a lot of sleep watching my kids deal with it. I did too. I had to call 911. <sighs> Uh, right. My youngest. It, it's a, oh, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. She just, there was no exchange. She was attempting to breathe. There was muscle movement, mm. but there was no air. That was the scariest thing. She had some sort of, um, just a, a junk, a, a plug somewhere in a big airway. Uh-huh. And I had her upside down and just pounding her back. Trying to get it out. And finally, she was able to cough it up and take a you know it still wasn't great and they came and oh just the scariest you know because they're so little i know it's they're true. just these little tiny things anyway keep an eye on your kid if you think you, they have croup please well that's the thing you know when you have croup when you have a child that has croup they are they become agitated if you couldn't breathe you'd be a little agitated a little nervous wouldn't uh, you? well and i think so you they and I, become scared you and they, i would say let's right. go to the hospital right is what we would say well, what happens is is that this fear and this agitation causes especially small children to cry more. And when they cry more, it makes it more difficult to take in air. Absolutely. You, you've seen kids that get actually out of breath as a result of crying too much. And it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious that you that this is what's going on with them. There is something that could resemble it a little bit, and that's called epiglottitis and an epiglot- uh, your epiglottis is a little uh, area in the back of your throat that sort of closes up the closes off the windpipe when you're drink, drinking, eating, or, or eating, right. right? So it doesn't go down the wrong pipe. So if that gets infected and that gets swollen, it prevents you from being able to breathe as well. So this is, or of course, you know, a foreign object in your child's uh, windpipe would do the same thing. If the child, a, a baby, swallows a peanut or something like that, that might do it. Now, you've got to keep that child calm. You've got to treat their symptoms. Try to uh, give them maybe a nebulizer or epinephrine is sometimes used by ne- uh, a nebulizer. Oxygen, if you have an oxygen tank, a lot of people have portable oxygen tanks. If not, you might consider having one. You won't be able to refill it in the survival situation, but you could use it at least for the time being. And... These are ways to deal with some of the worst cases. Now, when these options aren't available, at the very least, they need to inhale steam. So get water hot and boi- hot and boiling so there's steam going really hot so you have a lot of steam. And have that child breathe in the steam. Maybe cover the head with the towel so that the child gets as much steam as possible. Hang out there as much as possible. Hopefully it's a small bathroom that you don't have to run the shower too much to keep it steamy. But... Make a nice, comfortable spot. Bring the toilet seat down. Put a couple of blankets on there. Make yourself comfortable and get that kid in your lap and just stay in the steam. It's it's the best way for them to breathe. Absolutely. Now, we're going to talk about lower respiratory infections next week, but I think this is a a good part two to our upper respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. Remember that we're beginning to enter influenza season, so, you know, Talk to your doctor. Maybe you can get some Tamiflu just in case. I think everyone that we met up there in Gatlinburg and all the way back, including my brother's family, Charlie's family, and yeah. we stopped Charlie Hogg when we stopped by him in Georgia. He's moved up there. That whole family was sick. My dad had just gotten over something, 
and people that we saw along the way were sick. Everyone was sick. Every time, everywhere I looked, I heard coughing and sneezing and stuffy nose. It was terrible. Yeah, I, I am so shocked that we made it home without yep. being sick. That's right. Here, you know, like, give seriously, me, sick. give me the hand sanitizer. It's right there. <laughs> now you got me going here. Oh, here we here go. Wait, have wait, a little wait, hand squish, sanitizer here. Here's some. Yep. All right. There you go. All right. Okay, if you guys aren't. Washing your hands regularly, you know, throughout the day. Yeah, well, I just you know went what? and got a package from the front door, so who yep. knows how many people touch that yep. package. Well, there you go. So there we go. It's a good so idea. So, all right. So now <clears throat> here we are completely. Not that I'm saying the FedEx guy is sick, but you never know. So we're completely <laughs> hand sanitized and, and All right, now don't touch me. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you know, let's see. What else can we talk about? You know, we haven't talked what we haven't talked about in a long time is burns. Ooh. So, you know, many... Natural and man-made disasters come with the risk of burns or wildfires, mm-hmm. earthquakes, uh, gas leaks can cause explosions, of course, terror attacks, bombings, things like that. Other events often incur burn injuries. And if we find ourselves off the grid one day, we're going to have to cook our food over a fire, something that I don't do on a daily basis. Do we you? did, though, when we were in Gatlinburg. We did, indeed. We made a nice little fire. Oh, uh, yeah, we sure did. That was fun. And that was a lot of fun. Cooked our burgers. But I can't say that we're the biggest expert in the world on it. We know how to do it, but we don't do it on a daily basis. Not on a daily basis. So, therefore, you know, we can easily... If I can do an outdoor get... microwave, well, I guess that would be a sun oven. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it would well, be a cook, solar oven. Cook with our sun oven. I that have done work. that. There you go. But I want to just push a button and just have it finish <laughs> in three minutes. <laughs> If only, however, in survival, yes, the potential dear. for burn injuries is going to rise exponentially, especially if your group includes children. Kids are so naturally fascinated oh, yeah. by fire, they just can get too close. Ooh, I loved fire when I was a kid. Yeah, I'll bet you I'm did. I'm surprised I wasn't a fire starter. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, a fire bug. Pyromaniacs. Yeah. Pyromaniacs. I loved fire. Well, Fireworks, sparklers. Yeah. Lighting stuff. fires whenever we whenever we yeah. went camping, well, I, I was the one who got to start the fire. Well, that is and do all the kindling and uh, make it real small and. Well, how old were you when we were doing this? Oh my gosh, maybe seven. Oh boy, eight. Well, you know nine. what? Nine. You. Uh, I learned early. Learned early. Okay. Well, that's good. Now I'm not sure that that is. A, an endorsement for having your I, seven-year-old children start all the fires. I did but... not start fires that were not in adult view. And never. supervision. Never, ever did I. And, and we had some property. I could have never. I just knew safety. And also, I was scared to death I would get the belt. So, <laughs> so my dad had the, the little guilt power over us. We got in trouble. We knew what was coming, so... Better not do anything bad, or Mama was going to tell on you. You didn't want to run afoul of the corporal. Mm-hmm. Nope, nope, the nope. corporal punishment. Nope, <laughs> nope, not the Air Force, dude. Toe the go. line, and everything will be fine. <laughs> there you go. Well, anyhow, having materials and knowledge to treat burns is going to be pretty important for any group's medical provider. And so let's talk a little bit about burns. Now, the severity of a burn injury depends in part on the percentage of the total body surface that's involved as well as the degree of penetration into the body into through the skin right there's a whole map of the body with percentages of surface areas and in that in, in that map 
an arm counts for 9%, the leg counts for 18%, the front of your torso, 18%, the back of your torso, another 18 and so on and so on. And that's great for normal times. Assessing the surface percentage that's burned is pretty standard practice, very helpful in modern medicine, but might have less practical benefit in austere settings where uh, transport just isn't an option. Right. This, can... this is really used for assessing the initial contact of a burn victim, of, of charting what you're seeing as burned, uh, getting it into medical records, following the percentage of healing that's going on. Uh, they're really sticklers for percentage of body surface burned. Right. And so, and, and that's great because that gives you something to measure from. This is what started. This is what's healed. This is what, you know, still is left to be done. And so it's the way to chart progress. But what you're saying, I completely agree, is in survival, eh, is it 20, 30, you can probably, 18 percent? You can probably estimate you know I mean? it, like, you know, the estimate the yeah, sever- severity of a burn by the know, percentages, even I, in the wild. I think the fact that you just say this is really bad is, you know, probably good enough to right. be super careful with these patients. To me, more important is the depth of the burn. Yes, and exactly. let's talk a little bit about that. They're first degree burns, and most burns you'll see will be due to excessive exposure to the sun or by falling asleep in the tanning booth. Maybe not in survival. <laughs> I will never scenarios, be. I will but, never be accused of that. And I know. And, nope. and I'm glad that you're um, not. I don't want skin cancer. You definitely don't want to do that. No, no. Do that. So in other words, sunburn, and in most cases, these are going to be first degree burns, and in first degree burns, only the superficial part of the skin that called the epidermis is actually injured. Now, to avoid these kinds of burns, you don't want to sunbathe. Uh, a tan is not a sign of good health. It is more of a sign of carelessness. Uh, avoid being out during peak sun hours. That would be maybe 11 to 4 p.m., 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., and unless you have to be outside. Spend time in the shade whenever it's possible, or at, or at least Wear long pants and sleeves, hats, sunglasses, things like that. Why sunglasses now, you might wonder. Your eyes can be damaged over time with excessive exposure, which can lead to damage like cataracts. And cataracts are a clouding of the lens uh, of the eyes that happens over the years. In the old days, it left you mostly useless with a very, very cloudy vision. And then surgery finally came around to remove the lens and saddled you with very thick glasses. And now they can implant a new lens of truly a medical miracle. But imagine having this condition if you know what hit the fan. Well, if you can't avoid extended exposure to sunlight, be certain to apply a sunblock. Now, they should be applied prior to going outside and frequently throughout the day, even water-resistant sunscreens need to be reapplied from time to time throughout the day, every one to two hours. Most oh, especially people, if you get in the water. That's right. That's a big thing because those will wash off, despite saying they are waterproof. There you go. They'll slide off. That's right. Now, especially with the activity. And most people fail to put enough on their skin. So be generous in your application of sunblock and do it at least 15 minutes before going out in the sun. Now, by the way, a sunblock and a sunscreen are not the same thing. Sunblocks contain tiny particles that block and reflect UV light, ultraviolet light. A sunscreen contains substances that absorb UV light as opposed to blocking it. Uh, If you have something like this, basically what you have is something that is 
a different animal altogether. Now, many commercial products contain both sunblocks and sunscreens. Believe it or not, these are important medical supplies. They should be part of your medical storage if you are preparing for disaster settings. Now, you may have heard of the term SPF 30 or SPF 50 or some other number. The SPF is the sun protection factor, SPF. That rating system was developed in 1962 to measure the capacity of a product to protect against ultraviolet radiation. And it measures the length of exposure to the sun before you burn. A SPF of at least 15 is recommended. Uh, and what happens is, is that SPF 15 actually tells you when you should start burning. It takes about 20 minutes without sunscreen for your skin to start turning red. A product that is an SPF 15 should delay burning by a factor of 15. That would be about five hours compared to 20 minutes. Even higher SPF ratings would give more protection and are especially beneficial to people that have fair skin, like the goddess sitting next to me. <laughs> That's you, right? Just call me pale face. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides the sun, first-degree injuries will most likely be related to cooking or campfires, as I mentioned before. And using hand protection is going to prevent many of these types of burns, as, of course, would careful supervision of children, right? And especially near campfires and food preparation areas. Now, first-degree burn, that's going to appear red, warm, and dry. It's going to be painful to the touch. I'll bet that sometime in your life you've had a sunburn. The younger you are, however, probably the less likely that you've actually had a major sunburn because that's just no longer just a, in style. Even just a quick touch yeah. of something that's super hot. Yeah, that would do it, it too. Exactly right. The edge of an oven. Mm -hmm. I think I have several of those on my... Yep. Forearms. Now, most people do tolerate these, <laughs> and most people heal very well from these. Now, if you do have a, a a pretty significant burn over your chest or you know major part of your body that is a first degree burn, well, basically what you're going to have to do is to immerse it in a cool shower or a cool bath cool if you want to make off. you feel better. Yes. Uh, yeah, at the very least, run cool over over the area of the injury. Uh, a moist cloth maybe on the burn that might give some relief. Anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen might help. Aloe vera, zinc oxide, effective alternatives as well. And usually over the course of 24 to 48 hours, that discomfort goes away. Don't slap a pat them on the back or <laughs> slap them on the back. Please don't. You know, while that happens. But uh, that, I think, if, if you just leave people alone, they will be better. If you well, make sure they don't wear tight clothing or... You know, I think that they should be okay. And wear light fabrics if you can, such as cotton. Cotton, That yes. does not um, absorb a lot of heat. Now, then you've got second-degree burns. Of course, second-degree burns are much deeper injuries. Uh, they penetrate through the superficial epidermis and partially through the deeper layer of the dermis. And we call those either second-degree or partial thickness Burns. Those really, really hurt. Oh, yeah. Second-degree burns. I actually had a pretty significant one that started off as a, a sunburn, and my family kept putting this stuff on to make me tan more, <sighs> thinking that it was a stylish thing to do. Of course, this was many, many, many what years ago. What was that, ago. the iodine? Copper tone. Copper tone. Oh, okay. No, they didn't use iodine It was iodine also the, the baby oil. Yeah, the baby oil, copper tone, 
all these things you saw basically maybe, greasing your body and sticking yourself in a frying pan right is what essentially it was. what that was or falling asleep <laughs> in the tanning booth that's oh. basically what that was well i got it so bad that i actually my skin started to blister from the burn and you poor thing so i wound up laid up in bed you know hot as an oven oh yeah and with Probably a hundred blisters on my back. Oh, honey. And skin that was not quite like a sunburn. When a second degree burn occurs, it's going deeper, going into the deeper layer of the skin called the dermis. And when it does that, it changes the appearance. That area will tend to weep somewhat. So it'll be a moist looking burn. Instead of a red, hot, and dry burn, it'll be red and moist. May weep. Some clear liquid, some yellowish liquid, or or even some vague whitish material uh, called exudate. And this is something that causes a lot of swelling. The skin will swell much more than with a first-degree burn. And so if you have somebody that has that, make sure you remove rings and bracelets or necklaces, things like that, because it can be very difficult to get it off once the swelling has occurred. Well... My family thought the right treatment was to peel off the abnormal skin, and that was the bad thing to do because they wound up peeling off uh, about, they tried to peel off like what they thought was a little bit, and they peeled off about 12 inches of my skin, uh, a strip about two inches wide. You know what? I'm surprised you don't have a scar. I know. Do I have a scar? I don't even know. How how do Do I know if I have a scar? Do you remember which side it was on? It was right in the middle. In the middle. So here we go. This is... You know, this does look a little lighter right well, here. Well, there you go. Oh. So that... Maybe that's why they refused me. Ma- maybe that's why they rejected me for naked and afraid. <laughs> <I didn't>. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. Well, I'll have to live with that, but... That's okay. To treat second-degree burns... Nobody needs to see that. <laughs> well, thank you. Gotcha. And thank you so much. That is so nice of you. Oh, yeah. Listen, you know I don't mean it. <laughs> to treat second-degree burns, what you need to do is you need to run cold water, or cool water at least, over the injury for about 10 to 15 minutes, but avoid ice. Remember that skin is traumatized already, and applying ice to it is just going to damage it more. You want to apply moist skin dressings such as uh, Spenko Second Skin or maybe some non-stick dressings like Telfa Telfa pads. Mm -hmm. That would be useful. Well, Uh, I just want to mention something about Telfa pads. They actually have a a little bit of a shine, so they won't adhere to the healing skin, especially mm -hmm. when you have that second degree because your skin is going to start healing. And if you've got the gauze, if you guys know the woven look of just regular gauze, you know, overnight, some of those little cells could attach themselves. And then the next day you go to pull off the dressing and yowza, yeah, and skin goes with it. Just like what happened so to me. there's generic, non-stick, mm. non-adherent, any words like that. A brand name is actually Telfa. Right. Now, I think that it's probably best to always have a little bit of uh, drainage available that since that area is leaking uh, some fluid usually. Then maybe if you have, like three sides of that dressing taped down on one side not that might not be a bad idea of course you're going to need pain relief so get some get, get some ibuprofen uh, anesthetic ointment like benzocaine might be good they use something called silvadine which is a silver and uh, sulfadiazine antibiotic 
uh, combination that's very commonly used to treat burns, also used to treat bed sores, by the way. Uh, if you can find that, that'd be great, although I think it's by prescription. Uh, uh, antibiotic ointment if uh, the area is slow to heal. Now, if the blisters happen to be in areas where um, they're in the way, you might as well pop them if they're large. And I, when you pop a blister, pop it not on the top, but pop it towards the edge of it so that the skin remains on top. It will be sort of like a another dressing. A, t- a deflated tent. Right, You've exactly. allowed the fluid to come out, and the top of the tent just sort of comes down easily and provides another layer of protection because that skin underneath is so new and so healing, it's really, really tender. Absolutely right. I also have to say that if the blisters are not particularly large or if they're not going to be in the way when you're trying to lay down to go to sleep, for sure. example, and not going to pop on you when, when you lay down, then it may not be necessary at all to pop the blisters. Say, you know what? A, a good spot for that would be the top of your foot, unless you're going to be putting your foot in a shoe. I recommend flip-flops if you have a blister on top of your foot. Do right. not put your foot in a shoe if you can prevent it. Let it heal. I think that makes a lot That's of sense. That's a recipe for a way worse wound. You start putting a sock over like yeah. a bad burn and, and in a sweaty boot. Yeah. yeah. And also not remember, gonna heal very easily. And and your potential to prevent infection, your your tendency to prevent infection is compromised because you've lost part of your armor, right? Yep. Part of your skin. Yep. And so as a result, you may have a higher chance for infection if you do and something keep, like that. You'll keep putting friction on it. There's no way you can keep your foot from moving inside of a boot. So it it's just a whole mess of worms. Try to wear flip-flops if you have a blister on your foot. And you don't have to pop that is what we're saying. Well said. Well said. Uh, And let's talk a little bit about third-degree burns. Now, these are going to be so problematic in survival settings. They penetrate the full thickness of the skin. They go right through. They burn right through the skin now, and they're in deeper structures like fat, muscle, and bone. And burns like this can appear differently. They can appear charred. They can appear white in color. Um, it just depends so on gray, the source of the heat. So our, our different colors would be white, gray, black. Um, they, it might even look bloody. Yep, or You know, if, it, if it's if right. blood came out, but the, the blood was also charred. Right, it's true. You know, a, It can a, look crusty. A major scald will look different than an electrical burn. Exactly. So they do have different looks. These burns sometimes look indented if you've lost significant tissue. And these people are so at risk for infection because they have no skin yes. anymore. And, and so All the, the air, down. which has, even the air itself, which is colonized by bacteria, can cause a life-threatening infection. Now, oh, these people also lose fluids a lot. Sure, so. but I just want to mention one more thing about size. It, it, a third degree is a third degree, whether it's the width of your pinky and I mean the end of your pinky, so a half of an inch, or it's, you know, half of a leg. It's still a third degree. It's not the amount of of burned skin. It's the depth that gives you the definition of third degree. That's I just want correct. to be clear about that. Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> now, these people also lose fluids very rapidly, so you got to give fluids. If you have IV fluids, that may be something you may need to do is replace it with some normal saline, other kinds of other kinds of IV fluids. There's a whole formula for that. And the loss of fluids can be really rapid, too. So it's very, very scary. 
Now, when a person gets burned, you have to remove the heat source immediately uh, and run cool water over any degree of burn for at least 10 to 15 minutes as soon as possible after the injury. Cool water is better than ice. It's less traumatic to already injured tissue. You have to remember also in these cases, you also still want to remove rings and jewelry. Swelling is very common in these kinds of injuries. Uh, the skin, you don't have any skin anymore, so you have to remember that infection is very likely. You're going to have to give antibiotics to these people, and you have to have something to cover the burn area. Now, interestingly enough, combat gauze, not made by Quiklop, but made by Sealox, a Sealox um, Z-fold gauze, is something that if you wet it, it becomes this slimy dressing that is very good to cover a third-degree burn. And when you cover a burn... That's a, that's a third-degree burn with, let's say, plastic. Some people will cover it with plastic, put honey on or and cover with plastic, or put this on, this Sealox, this and cover with plastic. Make sure you don't cover with the plastic all the way around. Give it a little bit of opening so that it can expand because there may be more swelling that occurs. Right. So this is something that's really, really important. Now, Interestingly, there are indeed yes. other classifications that call them fourth and fifth and sixth degree burns. But this, from my standpoint, Again, is all you need to know. Exactly. To, in order That's to get That's more of a finesse in hospitals. Exactly. And I, I agree that in hospitals you have to be, you know, right on spot with what diagnosis you give, where you're starting from, and so you know how the healing process is going. So it's much more detailed in a hospital. Exactly. You know, we are out of time. We hope that you enjoyed this week's Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Burn, Dr. Burns, I mean Dr. Bones, and Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.